Hey there, hi there, ho there. Today, we are going all the way back to 1978. In the last of our decade series, we are letting the disco ball roll. We have got our bell bottoms. We are listening to dance music. It's the Bee Gees. They punched it all the way through, straight from their huge success from Saturday Night Fever, clearing the way for all that would come musically in uh, 1978 and beyond. But wait, it's not just music, it's comic books, it's movies. Superman, the movie, dun-dun-dun, dun-dun-dun-dun. Come on, Christopher Reeve, Dick Donner, Gene Hackman in one of the greatest movies of all time. It flies through 1978 and, and leaves a wake of massive achievement and, and influence behind it. The very best Marvel comics of 1978 are some of the best Marvel Comics of any era. The X-Men, the X-Men go international. The Avengers battle Korvac. Doctor Doom has a son, the son of Doom. And the very best, most accomplished creative team on the in the history of Iron Man kick off in 1978. This is a great year. We talk about the music, the movies, the comic books, and the television that made 1978 so great. On today's Rob Observations. Hey everybody, this is another episode of Rob Observations. I am Rob Liefeld, hence the Rob in Rob Observations. I have been writing, drawing, creating, publishing, producing uh, uh, comic books for 37 years now. This is what I do. This is my obsession. I turned this obsession into this podcast uh, two years ago and have not looked back. Uh, There is no shortage of subject matter on the daily in regards to anything comic book related. And if you were seven years old in 1974, as I was, and you were pulling your comic books off those creaky, awesome spinner racks, you would share the absolute wonder that I feel on a regular daily basis of all these different comic book things that are, that are, that are, you know, expanding in, in front of us, whether it's on your streaming device, whether you're watching on the phone or your nice, you know, XD television, or you're going to the theater or, uh, on your computer, your laptop. Yeah. I mean, I took a flight home recently from some of my different tours and you know, when they have some of those flights have the screens on in front of you and you can see the rows in front of you and what everybody's watching. Come on, you know, you do it. You're like, wait, I hope they don't watch notice that I'm watching what they're watching. You, you've all done it. You've all had that uncomfortable where you're looking and sometimes, sometimes, you know, you're like, Hey, is, is, is what they're watching more interesting than, than, than what I'm watching? Well, as you, as you watch in between the cracks of, 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 of the chairs, come on, here's the deal. So much of what's on lately is comic book stuff. I can glance over. I can go, Oh, Hey, they're watching Dr. Strange, that, that's already on Disney Plus and they downloaded it before the flight. Oh, hey, that person's watching the Thor movies, getting ready for the eventual Thor movie. Oh, that person's watching the boys. Hey, that person's watching, catching up on Invincible. Uh, just, it's everywhere. It's all around. And and, and it's not just limited, obviously, to comic books. It, it goes above and beyond in regards to uh, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, all the fantasy stuff. I mean, I've been hit with all these trailers lately 
of uh, the expansion of the Lord of the Rings saga. And I got to be honest, even more than the Star Wars saga, I have wanted somebody to expand that Lord of the Rings saga since I was a kid. There's so much meat on that bone. There is so much material to mine. And so I'm, I'm excited when, uh, is it called the Power of the Ring? Whatever, the, the Lord of the Rings. We're going to call it the Lord of the Rings show on Amazon. It's coming this fall. They are going to make certain that they have our full attention. I can't wait to see it. But all around us, all the time, superheroes, comic books, because those those comic books that I was pulling off the spinner rack, by the way, those are fantasy comic books. Those were adventure comic books. Those were mystery comic books, science fiction comic books, not just limited to superheroes, which I loved. I, I, I am such a superhero fan. But, you know, I love all of it. We've done dedicated podcasts, by the way. I, I would love for you to go and listen to my Sword and Sorcery podcasts because uh, Conan, the Barbarian, still relevant. Uh, really, really oh, just changed the game. The story of how that license, how Conan landed at Marvel is one of the most interesting stories in the history of comic books. I love sharing it with you guys. I went on to uh, do a couple other sword and sorcery podcasts that, ex- that expand on the ways that the market reacted and the market always reacts. You, you can, you can, you know, watch in real time as any market reacts to the success of a trend that, that, that some other company, entertainment, or otherwise, toy, games, whatever music is doing, people will jump on that trend. We're going we're gonna to cover some trends today for certain because part of uh, what I, I, I've been doing here lately is, is going through the decades. And uh, again, you know, especially today, you're going to see, see when, when, it, when, it, when it gets to trends and what happened in Sword and Sorcery, which, which is, is, again, a direct line to this Amazon you know, uh, uh, Lord of the Rings show. Cause, cause to draw the very linear, albeit bumpy line, uh, Conan exploded, uh, really became a giant hit for Marvel. Other companies followed and did various, you know, offerings in, in regards to sword and sorcery style comics. Some were blatant. Uh, they looked exactly like Conan claw, the conqueror, uh, you know, uh, other, 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 they even did a, a Beowulf com- comic book. They, I mean, uh, so many different, uh, Slayer. I mean, obviously the, the rest of the Robert E. Howard, uh, catalog was plundered with Cole, uh, and, and Red Sonia, Solomon Kane. So anyway, even Sinbad, okay. Sinbad of the seven seas, the golden voyage. So much of sword and sorcery was plundered over the years. And the wheat uh, was separ- was separated from the chaff. Uh, a little little biblical reference there for you, but uh, or or to put it in more poppy references, the the cream rose to the top. Okay, and uh, and for years Hollywood could not make a successful fantasy movie to save their life. They thought they thought it was Willow, and Willow was seen as a box office disappointment. But I loved Willow, and and I I hated that it wasn't a bigger hit because I knew it would be immediately framed as something not successful, which also sucks. But they found their way to a Willow series that will always be also coming out this fall. So probably around the time, if they're, if, if I'm, I'm guessing right, it's going to be after the Lord of the Rings, after Amazon takes their big swing, their big bite. But again, it's trends, it's trends. And it's always, something is always trending. Even on your Twitter, something is always trending. But those comic books I pulled off from the spinner rack, sword and sorcery, sci-fi, superheroes to watch them grow to expand to be cartoons and live action series with giant 30 million dollar plus budgets to be 100 million dollar budgeted movies 200 million dollar dollar budgeted movies to be 
honestly, hundred million dollar budgeted games. It's uh, it's it's just been just fantastic. And in the series that we've been doing this entire last feels like at least a month, the decade series, you guys have really responded um, very powerfully to it. It's fun because it it, it gives us a, a snapshot of all the different stuff going on in the world at the time. And uh, I think the thing that sets the tone the best every time is what music is in that decade. If you've already clicked on this episode, you know the year is 1978. 1978. Let me tell you something. I am ages 10 and 11 over the course of 1978. More 10 than 11. I have a late fall birthday, so whatever I, you know, the end of every year is when I'm changing into that, growing into that next age. But uh, 1978 was super fun. I have always uh, lamented to you all about how much I loved my childhood and the 70s. And look, I quoted 1974, you know, grabbing comic books off the spinner rack. That was a habit that stuck with me my entire life. I am obsessed with comic books. I have the disease. I have the fever, as Christopher Walken said. I got the fever. I got the fever, man. I got the fever. So my fever has always been comic books. And, uh, but, but, but part of the comic books was if I wasn't riding my skateboard or riding my bicycle or walking to the corner to grab those comic books off the different and uh, various, uh, spinner racks, I was in a car with my sister or with my dad or with my mom. And there was the soundtrack of 1978 playing out. And the music is so important to all of these experiences. I, powerfully uh, uh, associate music with comic books and television and the movies at that time because it just was so, uh, so resonant. I'm, I'm going to go full on old school, old school, old man with you right now. And I'm going to tell you, because I love telling my kids this, obviously, if you live in Southern California and you live in Orange County, as we do, and we have, and we've always had, this is the only home I've ever known. I have watched the expansion of the Disney empire. I remember going to Disneyland as a very young boy. I've told you guys here before they did a pass, um, which is now just, you know, whatever, a scan and, and you're in and, 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 and it's up, you know, th- then you, then you get to go and record, like if you want to do fast pass or stuff and, and stuff. But in the early, early days of Disneyland and, and in, in the, you know, days of my youth in the mid seventies, when you went to Disneyland as a family, you bought multiple books of tickets and they called them books of tickets and they were probably 20 tickets and, and, and they were A, B, C, D and E and E tickets were the ones that got you on the best rides. That was the Matterhorn. That was Space Mountain, but they also gave you the fewest of those tickets so that if you wanted to go on the very best ride, you had to buy an entire other ticket book. You didn't get to buy more E tickets. You got had to buy another book entirely. So uh, the, the A and B tickets were your Snow Whites, was your, you know, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, was your was your merry-go-round, was your more tame stuff. Your C tickets were more of the, you know, the ferry, the 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 big ferry boat around around the lake, maybe Tom Sawyer's Island. All just really incredible stuff. Stuff that I just I I again I have the most vivid memories. And I remember like always my parents were always really cool. They made sure that my sister, myself, my friends, we got the e-tickets. We got enough because they didn't really care about riding the more, the, 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 the more like, you know, uh, the faster uh, roller coasters like Space Mountain. When Space Mountain opened, man, that, that was just, those were long lines. Those were super duper. You want to talk long lines, especially, you know, we talk about now in terms of reserved seating and all this other stuff. 
oh my gosh. I mean, there was no fast pass. There was no reserve times. You waited in line if you wanted to get on Space Mountain or Matterhorn. And again, those were the dom- the domain of the e-tickets. Eventually, 80s rolled around. You got your, you know, one pass that got you into the park and the, and the day of the A, B, C, D, E tickets were over. But an e-ticket obviously was the, the, the most important, the most, you know, valued ride. Well, they, there was nothing even res- remotely resembling uh, what, what, what is now downtown Disney, which we've enjoyed since our, that was built when our kids were young. It debuted when, when our kids were like two and, and four. And so we, I remember my wife and I just going, wow, she's also born and raised in Orange County. So this is all she's ever known. And we both watched again, the expansion of this incredible Disney empire, but the Disneyland hotel, if you've heard me, uh, on the show before was a place that I met for the first time, George Perez, Chris Claremont, Jim Shooter, uh, Dave Cockrum, so many great, uh, and, and talented, uh, Michael Golden. I mean, so many Mike Grell, great, superstar talent of the times would come to the Disneyland hotel and, uh, which is still the original hotel is still located, uh, exactly where it used to. They've just built all these spectacular resorts and kind of, uh, attractions around it. But the original framework of that hotel remains. And it was the, the, the ballroom, quite frankly, was small conventions were not in the same category that they were today. But on the grounds of the Disneyland Hotel, aside from the comic book conventions that they'd have twice a year, I would visit the Disneyland Hotel with my parents. And on a Friday or a Saturday night, it was very common that we would go with another family and you would park at the Disneyland Hotel and you would go through the hotel because even though it is old now and and, and, and and seems kind of an ancient, even even with, the, even with its, you know, modern facelift, it, it, it's just, you know... It doesn't look like the other bougie uh, Disneyland, you know, resorts that they built up. But we would go, you know, you'd park and you'd walk through, you know, the the entrance and 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 through the through the hotel. They had the grounds, which for 1977, 1978, 1979 was like a big deal. It was a lot, lot of grass, but they had different food stations. But the big attraction, and for the and, and some of you know where I'm where I'm heading with this in regards to kind of building up this whole you know Disneyland uh, uh, Disneyland Hotel uh, attraction. I mean they, they had they had little 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 areas for games and they had a couple of outdoor restaurants. But the dancing waters, the dancing waters. Are, are does anyone know about the dancing waters? The dancing waters would I think play maybe five six times a night, probably a ten to twelve minute. Uh, performance where all these, you know, let's be honest, sprinklers, uh, you would stand behind, uh, you know, the barriers of this giant concrete dais. And there was all these, you know, little, you know, water uh, fountains and and, and sprinkler heads uh, that would then shoot up and the waters would do, the waters would go sideways. They'd go straight up. They'd, you know, they'd do, they'd, they'd kind of do all these different spouty things and they would do it to disco music. They would do it to disco music. So whatever was the disco music of the day, uh, was, was, was what you were likely hearing 
the, the, this, this, the, the water and, and, oh, I forgot. And, and, and rainbow assortments of colors would hit green light, blue light, yellow light. Sometimes you'd get them all pink light, red light, orange light. So the dancing waters was waters lit up by fancy lights and to disco music. And it was, uh, it was a big thing. You'd eat your ice cream cone or you would, you know, have your lollipop and your kind of slurpy style drink while your parents talked to other parents while they all leaned up against, again, the barrier to the giant dais as it was playing, <laughs> playing out the disco music, which leads us to what I'm telling you is the music of 1978. Because I feel like if we get the music out there, we, we kind of set the tone, okay? I can't play this music, and it's funny enough, on CBS News this morning, my favorite of all the news shows, it's like a, a lighthearted, less consequential, less hard news, less gotcha moment, 60 Minutes, made by many of the same producers, but it's on every Sunday morning. It's 90 minutes. They always have a great pop culture segment or two with music, um, either new bands, old bands, or new faces like Austin Butler or old faces like Tom Hanks, you know, so they cover Elvis from both sides and uh you should see elvis great movie boz lerman love this guy great 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 um the, the elvis movie opened a whole can of worms and i'm not sure how i'm going to form that into a podcast yet but it's coming but let me tell you there's a guy named chuck mangione and he was an instrumentalist a trumpet player and he had a song called feel so good and it charted forever and ever and ever and it always played during the dancing waters um and it went something like, uh, dun, 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 dun. no, here, back to CBS this morning. They had Toto on. I'm not a big Toto fan, but I appreciated the segment they had on Toto the other day. And the Toto guy revealed that he played on Beat It. And he had one specific guitar track outside of the solo that Eddie Van Halen laid down. And he turned to the host and says, you, you, you better get ready to pay for this. You're going to pay for Pay, pay some money for me playing this. And he played the entire riff, which you would understand, you would recognize immediately if you knew the song, Michael Jackson's Beat It. Well, again, the same thing is, I would love to share this music with you and play this music, but that is royalties, that's payments. And and uh, we don't have that on this show because this show is free and we love to give it to you free. And um, I mean, did you know that you cannot sing the happy birthday song in its entirety on television or you have to pay a royalty? Yes, that is true. Look that up. That's a fact. Hosts will stop singing it after like one or two bars uh, because it is a royalty uh, payout. And and again, so 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 just like the Toto guy who played the electric riff from Beat It that he established, um, I would love to play for you more of this music, and 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 so that you could share in the sway of my young ten year old hips as I was digging the dancing waters. This was also called, and we we understood it, cheap entertainment. Did you know that I did not go on a plane? to fly anywhere until I graduated high school and I had to fly back to Chicago to take care of my dad. That is true. I did not go to Hawaii until my honeymoon. We were all together now poor. The Liefelds were not um, well off. We were struggling. We did not have a lot of money. And so we uh, partook in stuff like going, as, as so many residents of Orange County did, because the Dancing Waters was always packed. I mean, it was always like, you had to, if you wanted to lean up against the barriers, uh, and not to just stand on, on the grassy knoll, uh, you had to get there a little earlier. The, the dancing waters were always playing to so many people. Aren't you glad that you tuned into today's dancing waters podcast? Yeah, you are. Okay. So they played disco music. What is the music that you were listening to in 1978? You know, you want it, you know, you want to know it. And I'm here to share it with you because that's what I do. 
but it sets the tone, man. It sets the tone. Now, some of you are like Liefeld. I was not alive. I was just a, a, a thought in somebody's eventual, you know, activation of me. Well, I'm, I'm, I get that too. And, and you know what? Thanks to Yacht Rock, you will recognize some of these. Okay. The number one singles. Okay. There's an act here in the top 10. That's going to come up. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five times, five times. This family ruled the charts rule. Absolutely ruled the charts in 1978. And that is the brothers Gibb, the Gibb brothers. Okay. Let's see if I can remember it's, it's Barry, it's Maurice. Yeah. I can never get all three of them, but they had a younger brother named Andy, the Gibb that together they were the Bee Gees and they were riding high off the, uh, Saturday night live fever soundtrack, which carried all the way from 1977, all the way through very powerfully into 1978. But their younger brother, who was a heartthrob, possibly the most um, physically attractive of all of them, although Barry Gibb with his very hairy and masculine chest would give him a run for his money. He, uh, Barry Gibb, who would, who would have been at home portraying Killraven, Tarzan, uh, uh, Korak, son of Tarzan, uh, Kazar, you know, all of the, the commandy, all of the bare-chested guys that my retailer says he cannot sell because he cannot sell bare-chested guys. He says, if, if, if the guy's got his shirt off, this book isn't selling. It's one of the funniest things any retailer has ever said to me. And look, man, they should know they're selling the books. So when they tell me and they give me these gems, I, I hold on to these gems. I, I And then I share these gems with you. But, but the 1978 scene was dominated. Andy Gibb had the number one single with Shadow Dancing. I would sing it for you, but I'm not going to pay for it. Shadow dancing, Bee Gees, his brothers, Maurice, Barry. Mm. The, you're you're screaming the other name to me right now, but I have blockage. Okay, uh, the Bee Gees had night fever. Debbie Boone with her giant number one smash, smash a a daughter of a of a um, um, actor who would go on to be kind of kind of a religious figure. Uh, Debbie Boone had you light up my life, and anyone who was alive in 1978. Heard, absorbed, consumed, you light up my life. But the Bee Gees came in number four with Stayin' Alive. Ha, 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 ha. I'm not paying for that. Okay. Exile had a great song called Kiss You All Over. I'd love to sing it for you, but I'm not. But the Bee Gees said, we're not going anywhere because number six is How Deep Is Your Love? Okay. Also from the Bee Gees. Player. Maybe my favorite one-hit wonder of all time. And they're like, no, they have two hits. No, let me tell you something. Most people only know Baby Come Back, which is a fantastic song from 1978 player. Number eight, Andy Gibb, Love is Thicker Than Water. A Taste of Honey had their disco smash, Boogie Oogie Oogie. And the Commodores closed it out with Three Times Lady. But between the Gibbs and the, Andy Gibb and his brothers, they had one, two, three, four, five of the top 10 singles of 1978. So we were... In the throes, in the throes of disco, okay? Now, the albums were another thing. The albums of 1978 were Grease, Blondie, Steve Miller Band, The Dire Straits, Jeff Wayne, Rod Stewart, Van Halen, Billy Joel, Boston, and Foreigner, okay? So we had, I mean, that Grease soundtrack, that Grease soundtrack sold 25 million copies. You wonder why people have such amazing recollections and feelings for John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John, it is the Grease movie which blew up the world. But for Superman, but for Superman, Grease would have owned the the year of 1978. Now, in comic books, I'm going to tell you real quickly, 
there is a reason why I believe that 1978 is such a formative year. Often when I hear, and I do, I, I listen a lot of sports radio, sports broadcasting, and recently we had the NBA Finals, and, and the thing that kept coming down is which team would have the better player? Which team, Whoever won, ultimately they would decide had the better player. And it was decided that Steph Curry was the best player in the entire series. And who's going who's gonna to argue with that? I'm not, and you shouldn't. Oftentimes, when I look back at those Lakers seasons, my, my team won. Magic was the best player, and Kareem was the best player. Shaq and Kobe were the best players. Shaq and Powell were the best players. Um, this old adage that you kind of, you know, you uh, the team with the best player is going to is going to win. And I obviously am a giant, massive uh, believer of 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 this very age old adage and. I believe that 1978 has some of, if not the best, the very best comic books ever produced. So on that notion alone, wouldn't these comics be, you know, candidates for the best of all time, the best comics ever published? And especially, you know, if you get down to brass tacks and you just sit there and you figure out, well, did the best comic book ever in the entire history of comic books come out in 1978? I am going to make that argument today. I am going to make that argument. I'm going to make that argument in the most powerful of ways because I truly believe that we were on the absolute precipice of, 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 of greatness in regards to the comic books that were being made. Now, the easiest argument to be made that is in 1978, that is when John Byrne had assumed control of X-Men. There are two subjects that I speak of often on this show, and they are the X-Men and Star Wars. I did a kind of a quick kind of survey among friends and family, and they confirmed to me that the two things that they hear me talk about most of my life are Star Wars and the X-Men. And that makes sense. That tracks. That completely tracks. I am obsessed with George Lucas and all his creations, and I am obsessed with all things X-Men. And I always have been. And, uh, and, and, I, and, and I feel like there's no changing that. There's no turning that back. But in the summer, in, uh, no, I'm sorry, in the, in the uh, it was the summer of 1978 that the X-Men went on this great run. The, 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 the story took them internationally from the Savage Land. It took them to Japan. It eventually took them to Canada. And it, it was, for my money, the most, the most exciting, the most riveting uh, that, that, that the X-Men had, had ever been. Pages from that comic are extremely difficult to come by. Um, and I'm talking about original pages that come up on the original art market. I, I see them sometimes that, that the truly amazing, outstanding, uh, just like blow you away pages, they just don't come to light. There's a double pager of Wolverine in the Savage Land battling Sauron, who is a pterodactyl man. That was a seminal issue for the X-Men. Um, it, it the issues where the X-Men were battling Magneto under the volcano where Magneto had his lair. Uh, those are hard to come by, but that entire year from the, from the X-Men, uh, from the X-Men being kidnapped by Magneto and, and, and stolen and stolen away and, and kept in his volcano hideout all the way towards, uh, towards, uh, you know, 
the eventual breaking out of the volcano and the three chapters that they spent in the uh, the Savage Land. Uh, and, and then throughout that entire year, again, their journey to Japan, there was an interlude in all Professor Xavier um, issue where you went back to Cairo to when he was an archaeologist and his showdown with another very powerful um, uh, uh, mental mutant with, with incredible mental you know, telekinetic powers. And he had a really wicked showdown and kind of served uh, Xavier in regards to like showed him what true terrifying power was. These are some of my favorite, if not my favorite year on the X-Men. So it makes sense that I am going to tell you that this is like, this is a year that holds a a near and dear place in my heart. It is the time that the X-Men stopped being bi-monthly too because of John Byrne's proficiency, his ability to get these books out on time they made the decision to take the book monthly. And that was a big deal. The reason Dave Cockrum had to leave the book, you know, despite the fact that he was drawing some of those beautiful comics ever, is that they wanted the book to be on time. I've chronicled here in the, uh, in, 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 I've chronicled um, in, uh, on, on, on past shows uh, at great detail that, the editor of the of the book, Archie Goodwin, called in John Byrne and said, "Look, I want you to take over. I want you to exert uh, your influence, and and I want you to take over this book." And John Byrne was like, "No, I really want to, you know, uh, who had been doing all manner of different jobs for them. I mean, John John Byrne had been kind of waiting for his big moment. He had been doing fill-ins on Fantastic Four, on the Avengers. He did a really great three-part epic. Uh, he had been doing Marvel Two and One, Marvel Team Up. He's like, well, I want I want to do Marvel Team Up with Terry Austin." And he's like, no, I want you to do X-Men with Terry Austin. I want to bring this team that had done this sci-fi black and white magazine for Marvel called Star-Lord. The uh, first appearance of Star-Lord. Yes. This this epic, this dedicated solo adventure uh, features the most outstanding art by Mr. John Byrne and Mr. Terry Austin. They wanted them to move to the X-Men book because they believed the giant-sized X-Men book could be saved by their art, and they were right. And again, by May and June and July of 1978, the X-Men is cooking, and they even put, you know, that they, they wanted you to know, now it's monthly. You don't have to, we had been trained. You know, these bi-monthly books, again, Daredevil is bi-monthly at this time. It, it does not have the sales to sustain uh, a monthly track record and, and a monthly shipping schedule because Marvel would, would then put these books, Marvel would put these books in their, um, you know, keep them on a bi-monthly schedule to keep the copyright or the trademark alive, but but they wouldn't necessarily, uh, you know, they, they didn't want to cancel them because then they'd have to restart them. And and and, and how, <laughs> how crazy is that sound now, right? How crazy does that sound now? But it was in July of 1978 that X-Men finally went monthly. Three years after taking the world by storm with the giant size X-Men number one, which sold out and got so much demand and got so much heat that they decided to go forward with a brand new show with a brand new series. So that is when the X-Men really took off. So the X-Men had a killer year. It is one of my favorite years. It's the international year again, as I said. When you get, um, for me, I love Kazar. I love Zabu. That's kind of Marvel's version of the Tarzan character. And man, 
when Kazar and, and Zabu come out of the jungle to greet the X-Men and, and at first it looks menacing, that is some phenomenal, some phenomenal comics. These comics are so good. I've said this many times. It is absolute historic fact that when Jim Lee came on the book, he convinced Chris Claremont to do something that Chris was very adamantly against up until that point and go back and do sequels to all of these adventures that we loved as kids. And I remember going, wow. I mean, because anybody you talk to from that age who grew up, whether it was McFarlane, myself, Art Adams, Jim Lee, Eric Larson, we wanted more of what we loved. We wanted more Magneto versus the X-Men. We wanted more X-Men in the Savage Land. We wanted more X-Men International, whether it was battling Alpha Flight or teaming up with Sunfire to, buy, to, to battle Moses, Magnum, and the Mandroids as they did in the Japan leg of this incredible adventure. Because that was just a very exciting time. You know, the Dark Phoenix saga had kind of been its own thing. Nobody really wanted to do a sequel to that. It was such a self-contained, well-told story. But it was these other areas of interest. And sure enough, Jim, you'd see early on in his run, he was successful in rerouting so many of their adventures uh, back to the Savage Land with Magneto, with Kazar, with Zabu. Um, all of those different kind of, of, of tropes that we as fans love so much. Jim was now ringing the bell and going back there just as any well, well-meaning, well-mannered, you know, commercially minded guy who took over the X-Men would do. And it was fantastic. It was fabulous. But I'm, I'm going to maintain to you that the reason 1978 is so amazing, um, more than the fact that, uh, it would give us, you know, the Superman movie, uh, was that in my opinion, in my humble opinion, but I, I know I am not alone. The single best comic book ever produced is produced in 1978. It is produced in the final day of January of 1978. It came out January 31st, 1978. It is called Superman versus Muhammad Ali. It is everything. It is the Top Gun Maverick of comic books. It gives you everything you want. It gives you personal uh, 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 character drama, uh, great competition, who's going to fight the alien, Superman and Muhammad Ali are going to compete against each other. How do you do that? Superman could, would smash, you know, and break the bones and, and, and turn Muhammad Ali into powder. Of course, they cover this. Muhammad Ali insists that it be an even matchup and they have a device that will sync up uh, Superman's, you know, limitations to the point where he is on par with Muhammad Ali. And then it comes down to just boxing. And obviously, if it's coming down to just boxing, you've got to get the edge to Muhammad Ali. Neil Adams wrote and drew this amazing story where aliens come down looking for a champion. Um, and, 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 and because, you know, they, they figure that, uh, that no one can defeat them and no one can defeat their, their, their champion and, and earth will fall and earth will fall, you know, predictably, uh, you know, peacefully if they just go by this amazing uh, boxing match. So the book is so beautifully rendered and illustrated. And on the recent Neil Adams uh, tribute show, I, I covered this guy with with you guys. I mean, faces, figures, rendering, backgrounds, storytelling, page design. There is no box that this book does not check. It is magnificent. And to make it all better, it's twice up. It's a treasury sized edition. Uh, a couple of years back, they put it maybe 15 years ago, DC printed it in a hardcover format. They recolored some of it. It is not as impressive because kids of our era, we like the bigger size. We want that, that treasury. We want that treasury edition. We, we deserve that treasury edition. Okay. And, uh, 
we 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 were we were you know we were absolutely committed that the treasury edition is what we were going to get and 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 <laughs> and, and and that was that that and, and seeing anything other than the treasury edition is a little kind of underserved it's it's underserved in regards to the excellent of the story and art and uh again i i feel i feel like you know some musicians have a perfect album in them um i i would argue that the eagles hotel california michael jackson's thriller prince's purple rain uh you know um um uh, fleetwood mac you know uh, uh they they just each of these bands has made a, a perfect each of these acts has made a perfect you know, album. And I believe that Neil knew as he was doing Muhammad Ali versus Superman, that he was making the perfect comic book. It, it, it was peak Neil Adams. There's crazy action sequences, crazy splashy giant sequences with tidal waves. There's a sequence where he takes out an alien armada by literally in regards to how he's going to pull it off. And the time that he has, he has to fly through all of them. Yes. I'm spoiling some of this magnificent story. It won't matter. You will read this. You will look at this book and you will be blown away in 1978. So, so, so we got the best comic book ever produced by the best comic book artist that there ever was in 1978, a seminal year. Anytime Neil did anything, people aspired towards it. John Byrne is a Neil Adams acolyte. His work is like a slightly diluted version of Neil's work. Neil knows it. John knows it. They both um, spoke of the influence that John took from Neil openly. And uh, it's part of the reason why when I tell you some of those pages from those international uh, issues, I mean, there's double page splashes that it is like a a, a modern kind of uh, a slightly modern tweak on what Neil was doing, but it, it doesn't exist without Neil. So Byrne is hugely Neil Adams influenced and is flexing all those Neil Adams muscles across this X-Men uh, effort that he puts forth that puts the book on the map and gets it monthly. But over at Marvel on the Avengers, the Korvac saga, which I have told you was just riveting. It was a mystery woven over a 12-month cycle by Jim Shooter, who, in my opinion, is the best writer of the Avengers uh, of all space and time, whether it is the Count Nefarious storyline, whether it is the Ultron, the birth of the wife of Ultron, Jocasta, or this Korvac saga. I think Jim Shooter flexed as much as any uh, writer ever did. I felt the unease the entire period of his run between Captain America and Iron Man, both of who were jostling for... Uh, you know, alpha dog positioning within the Avengers organization. During this period of time, uh, the Avengers lineups were were, were constantly kind of um, being in, in a state of upheaval. Uh, there was a mystery as to why and where Thor would appear. And, and, and oftentimes when they needed him the most, he was not there, which was uncharacteristic with how the character had been portrayed in the Avengers over the history of the book. But Jim was setting you up to reveal to you that this was all part of this Korvac plan. And Korvac himself was being hunted at the time by the titans of the Marvel Universe, of, of which, because you guys have seen the movies, you know that Benicio Del Toro plays a character called the Collector. He's an eclectic uh, cosmic titan who um, loves to collect things from all manner of uh, timelines, objects, creatures, pe people. And he had been collecting Thor during this time. And it explains why Thor kept getting shot in and out of continuity. It was depending on when Collector was attempting to grab him. 
But this is all coming towards the third act. He built a wonderful first act because the Guardians of the Galaxy appear at the end of 1977 in the Avengers comic book with their giant kind of uh, very Death Star-inspired, like, wow, this is like a small moon space station. And the, uh, uh, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy Galaxy have, have traveled from thousands of years in the future because they believe that Korvac is alive and well and living among uh, the people of 1977, the, the mid-late 20th century. This draws Nick Fury, S.H.I.E.L.D., and the Avengers into the fray. Well, as this continues throughout 1978, this mystery unfolds. There is fantastic stories within stories as the mystery is placed, but the mystery is always above all else, whatever they encounter, whoever they encounter. There is always a trace of something in regards to what Korvac is doing. In one entire issue, Starhawk locates Korvac's um, home and decides to show down, have a showdown with him personally, thinking that he is alone. He alone is enough to take down Korvac, and he is served. Uh, bitter defeat as Korvac um, asserts his strength and power on him and sends him back without any memory of their conflict because Korvac does not want anyone knowing what he's doing, where he's doing. But Starhawk was just completely outclassed, and Starhawk was one of the A-list cosmic power Marvel characters. But again, that was outside of a regular, you know, story that was told in that very episode uh, of, of The Avengers. Again, illustrated by George Perez, inked by Pablos Marcos, written by George, uh, by Jim Shooter. Just an amazing story. Great conflict, great tension. Again, as the Avengers <clears throat> go into final battle with Korvac, there is a lot of discussion, again, especially the Wonder Man character, just questions like, are they marching into their deaths? This guy has shown no signs of weakness whatsoever. And the final battle uh, is is so kind of uh, in, inspired in that they, they have to go to, to the suburbs to locate where Michael Korvac has made his life with his wife, who is now incredibly almost equally as powerful as he is. So they are fully up against it when they go to confront them. And when I say they, I mean Iron Man and Moon Dragon. And <clears throat> Thor, Captain America, Vision, Scarlet Witch, Wonder Man, the Beast. I mean, all the, all the heavy hitters. Everybody, like literally almost all of the A-list Avengers are arriving to make this giant showdown. And uh, and it, it's it's brutal. It's it's It involves... The Watcher and the gods of the universe, the Zeus, Odin. I mean, it's it's big scale. For my money, it is the single biggest, you know, story that the Avengers ever told, even bigger than the Kree Scroll War, which had a galactic kind of backdrop. But this really had a cosmic through line in the entirety <clears throat> of the Korvax saga. So K-O-R-V-A-C. Korvac would be a fantastic cinematic villain, but you guys know kind of I've expressed to you you know, uh, over the course of this show that I just don't, I, I, the, the movie stuff, the cinematic stuff, we keep hoping that it's as good as the comics and it's not. And I know there's a new age of people who are so invested emotionally, really emotionally in being fans of these films, but they are never going to be as good as the comic books. They just aren't, uh, not, not for my money and, and, and from what I've seen, not ever. And yet the comic books, the source material, which is so brilliantly t- told and again, uh, for, you know, in, in real time, we, we had to wait 30 days between installments. And, and, and many times we were, you know, we were, uh, you know, biting our fingernails, waiting for the outcomes of these incredible stories. 1978 was also 
this incredible John Byrne run on the Mar- on Marvel Team Up. He did do Marvel Team Up. He just didn't do it with Terry Austin because they wanted the most commercial line inking him to be the one that was inking him on the X Men via Terry Austin. But in the uh, in the in the meantime, the the uh, alongside this incredible Avengers run that carried us throughout the the entirety of uh, of 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 you know, 1978, and then, of course, the fallout and the aftermath of the same story. Uh, you know, Marvel is knee-deep into... that. Uh, they are... 1978 is the majority of the first year of What If. <clears throat> and as we've covered What If, I did an entire episode of what on this this era of What If in regards to uh, the fact that What If is the, is the, is the dirty little playbook. I, I say that in, in a funny way. It's, it's actually the blueprint, the secret blueprint, I think it's called. Marvel's secret weapon, secret blueprint of the Marvel Universe. Because uh, what if Jane Foster was Thor was established for the first time there, seeing Jane Foster become a female Thor happen in the pages of What If? I believe the art, the writer's name is Don Glutt. I know the artist is Rick Hoberg. That is now coming to bear in, you know, you're going to see it on screen in Love and Thunder. Yes, Jason Aaron, 30 plus years later, 40 years later, would do that, implement that. But that idea, that visual, that image, that storyline, that 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 double size, by the way, these what if you these what if issues are double sized. They have twice the the uh the content. You know, you saw that in an issue of what if. Uh what if number 12, which comes out in September of 1978, you know, had what if Rick Jones had become the Hulk? Well guess what happened? Guess what happened? Rick Jones did become the Hulk. You know, um, um, late later on in 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 the history of of the uh, the the <laughs> in the history of of the 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 Marvel universe. So so not only did what if not only did Jane Foster become the become Thor in in the you know what if number ten what if Jane Foster Foster had become Thor? Well, in in issue twelve in nineteen seventy eight, what if Rick Jones had become Hulk. And, you know, what if the Avengers had fought during the 1950s became a thing? Marvel implemented this into their absolute history in the early 2000s. This exact team of Quasar, 3D Man, uh, uh, Venus, uh, you know, the, the human robot. I mean, all of this stuff came to pass. They just kept going, well, what if we were, you know, to implement all this stuff and make it real? Okay. And, and uh, I mean, what if someone else... Besides, Peter Parker had been bitten by a Spider-Man, became an entire basis of J. Michael Straczynski's Spider-Man saga in the early 2000s. These, um, what if Captain America hadn't vanished during World War II is the basis of so much of what the Winter Soldier became. I mean, these books that, 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 that made up the majority of their publishing schedule in 1978, uh, again, are the blueprints of, of what Marvel would then look to in regards to... Uh, New storylines, new explorations. Again, in the 2000s, I shared with you guys, in the 2000s was when Marvel really doubled down, super doubled down on on derivatives and, and not giving as many new characters as they chose to give you um, multiple versions, you know, two Captain Americas. Again, you'll life, you did that on Heroes Reborn. No, when we did Heroes Reborn, just a side note, there was only one Iron Man. It was the one we gave you. There was only one Cap. It's the one we gave you. They... They, there was not two. There wasn't an Ultimates version and a Marvel version, okay? And then later on, you know, in triplicate, multiple people becoming Captain America in the Marvel Universe while there was a 
Captain America in the Ultimate Universe. But during this time of the 2000s, this what if became like literally one of, if not the most important, you know, playbooks. Um, again, cannot emphasize enough, Superman Muhammad Ali, the greatest comic book of all time, is published in 1978. It, it kind of... Right there, that's where the hammer gets dropped. But as we go through the summer of these X-Men stories, of these Korvac stories, and yes, they were the two biggest selling books. Um, Fantastic Four also had a killer story. I've covered it in, 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 in my top favorite action comics. There's a podcast dedicated to my top favorite action comics. The Son of Doctor Doom story that leads up to Fantastic Four 200, which still has the single best fight Versus with Reed Richards battling Doctor Doom in Latveria to save his family, to save his his wife and his friends. Uh, that Son of Doom is nothing short of phenomenal. It runs the last, you know, five issues of uh, from like one ninety five sets it in motion and just accelerates towards a double sized uh, issue two hundred. Nineteen seventy eight saw a lot of anniversary issues. You got Spider Man. Uh, anniversary issues. You got uh, you got Fantastic Four. Um, uh, you, you got the you got Fantastic Four two hundred. Um, you know, <clears throat> you got uh, you 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 were treated to uh, whoo the uh, you know the 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 Spider Man anniversary issues uh, later on down the way as. Uh, Man, I mean, just so, so many crazy anniversary issues came out during 1978. And I'm just looking over and just seeing how great these comics were, how amazing these comic books were. But hey, I don't want to hear these DC fans. Come on, man. I, I The best book ever is published that year, okay? Is Batman good that year? Sure, it's great. Justice League, it's fun. Are the Defenders fun? Sure. Fantastic Four, for me, Avengers and, and X-Men have top flight storylines. Storylines. Did you know that it was in 1978 when John uh, John Romita Jr. and Bob Layton and Dave Michelini asserted their influence and began their decade, their years long, years long run on Iron Man, uh, as transformative a run as you are ever going to encounter. And and those issues started shipping in 1978, and they absolutely never looked back. I mean, this stuff is uh, is just phenomenal it is it is really early uh in 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 1978 uh it is with the i believe it's the june or the july issue that that they that they uh come on board and this is this is that run that doesn't get as as quite as much love as it as it deserves but it is david michelini and john Romita jr and bob layton uh join in 1978 and they never look back. And they 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 create a mythology and a storyline. We get the demon in a bottle. We get to see all of the multiple versions of Iron Man's armor across this period that carries into the early early 80s. Um, Madame Mask is brought back to her prominence. We get Spy Master. We get uh, a, a killer John Byrne fill-in issue uh, to, to boot, inked by Bob Layton. I mean, Bob Layton really was the glue. He and Michelini were co-writing. And, and Bob was the polish on any punsler, but for the most part, it was John Amita Jr. And there is a killer showdown with um, Prince Namor, Submariner, in, in, in these issues in 1978. Super amazing, fun ride. Uh, 
that 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 so Iron Man, so Iron Man, X Men, Avengers, and Fantastic Four are in peak form. They are in peak form. Who is doing the Fantastic Four at that time? It is not a name I, I speak of enough. Marv Wolfman, Keith Pollard, Joe Joe Sinnott. Um, a powerful run, a powerful run that straddles kind of the post Kirby run and the pre epic five year John Byrne run. And John Byrne works his way in in filling issues throughout this, but this Son of Doom saga is just phenomenal. I did an entire episode on it. Again, it's, it's, it's action comics, my top five action comics of all time. Rounding out this particular uh, uh, podcast on, on 1978, we are going to look, because come on, we did the music, okay? We did the music, and now it's time. What were the top movies? What were the top movies? Well, come on. Another one. I wish I could th- hum the theme song to you. But an outstanding effort, an outstanding, just amazing. One year after Star Wars is Superman. Superman the movie. Dick Donner, Christopher Reeve, Gene Hackman in just a movie that took America by storm. It was released late in 1978, so it made most of its money going into 1979 because it played in January and February. But it ultimately was the top movie that was released in 1978 with $134 million. And... uh only edging out Greece, I told you, if not for Superman, Greece would have indeed been the word. Um, it would have it would have ruled the box office. Greece is only two million, less than that, almost one point eight million dollars behind. Superman had one hundred and thirty four million two hundred eighteen thousand. Greece had one hundred and thirty two million four hundred thousand uh, in terms of necking it out in the box office and edging out one versus two. Superman took the day. It took comic book storms, uh, comic book fans by storm. Slow down, Rob. Took comic book fans by storm. Uh, Superman had suddenly so many comics. Superman, Superman Family, Superboy, Action Comics featuring Superman, World's Finest with Superman and Batman. Um, uh, Just DC Comics presents Superman teaming up with different characters in the DC Universe. Superman was the flagship character for DC and there was no looking back. Batman was actually having titles, Leave Him. We've covered that many times on this, how, how it's been in the last 30 years that Batman has become the figurehead for the company when for all this time, and especially during this period of 1978, with the exceptional Dick Donner, uh, Christopher Reeve Superman movie that Superman took over. I don't, for, for those of us who were around and were seeing the advertising, the billboards, the trailers, the TV commercials, the motto for Superman was, you will believe a man can fly. So often we saw characters flying on television, on t- you know, shows that had a decent budget and it looked kind of cheap. It didn't, it didn't look great. Superman, the movie obviously has Christopher Reeve flying all the time, all over the place. And it looks phenomenal. He flies in space. He flies in the atmosphere above the earth. He flies, you know, through the city. He grabs helicopters, saves them from falling. I mean, he is taking off from buildings, landing on buildings, uh, going through windows. It is some of the most amazing flying footage especially it holds up I, I i even with my 4k whatever super hd tv that i have uh i got the you know recent reissue the re- recent collections and i watch them and they stand up the writing is great the 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 character portrayal by christopher reeve who uh, it, it really is tough there's been it, when you think about it there's been so many spider-mans and so many batmans and i understand you guys know how much i love man of steel it's my favorite dc movie but it is still, I acknowledge that it is hard to get out from the, under the shadows of the amazing uh, presence and performance of Christopher Reeve, who just owns that character for all time. And it is due to the amazing direction by Rick, 
Richard Donner, Dick Donner. I know he had a huge fallout with the Salkinds, who were the pr producers, and he um, didn't do as much of the sequel as was hoped. But uh, Richard Donner, uh, who had, was coming off The Omen and, and some really big hit movies, had been entrusted with you know, taking this franchise and introducing it to a blockbuster film audience. And he did it. He did it a year after Star Wars. He stuck the landing. This movie was beloved. Uh, it had a great triumphant story. The ending is fantastic. Even at the theaters, like, I'm like, what? Wait, they killed her? Um, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work on the uh, idea that some of you still haven't seen it, so I don't want to blow it completely. But um, Marlon Brando, who was reluctant to be in films any further, was paid an enormous amount of money, but his performance as Jor-El gave it such gravitas and uh he, he is uh oh, especially in that end when his face is in the cloud and he's calling out to his son uh Kal-El I mean oh my gosh Superman the movie that score uh up there in my opinion with the best of everything John Williams has ever done I may prefer it over Star Wars and Raiders uh a phenomenal movie I, I mentioned earlier Greece John Travolta uh coming off Saturday Night Live uh, Saturday Night Fever. I know I'm going to hear from some of you. You said Saturday Night Live. Yes. Saturday Night Fever. John Travolta, huge mega hit teamed with Olivia Newton-John, who was just a huge uh, pop darling and never was more glamorous, pretty sexy and ditto for Travolta. I mean, they, he, he shook his hips. He did his dancing. They sang great songs. Super fun movie. Stands the test of time. Grease is the number two movie of 1978. Animal House, the raucous movie to end all raucous movies what a crazy belushi performance just super fun movie hard r-rated especially for the time 1978 stormed the castle with 120 million clint eastwood was uh you know dominating as he always did with every which way but loose this is actually a really assertion of his box office power that he carried that movie just on his own you know star power and performance to the uh, fourth movie of 1978 with every which way but loose Mr. Warren Beatty, uh, directed, starred in Heaven Can Wait. Uh, again, a, a byproduct of the uh, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls era uh, uh, with his his emphasis on becoming a director and not just a, a pretty boy actor, continued to assert his dominance and Heaven Can Wait was the number five movie of the year. It took audiences by storm. People love this. The funny part is he is re a reincarnated quarterback from the Los Angeles Rams. So come on. You think that didn't play well in Orange County because that's where the Rams were playing at the time? It did. Uh, Hooper, Jaws 2, Up in Smoke, a Cheech and Chong movie, Revenge of the Black Panther, and The Deer Hunter, a dramatic kind of Vietnam War movie fallout uh, kind of feel-bad movie of the year, <laughs> uh, was number 10. But Superman, Grease, Animal House, I mean, that's, that, 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 that there may not be a better top three, a more diverse top three in the history of cinema than those three movies, which absolutely dominated 1978 was just a super fun year to round it all out. Um, you, you, we, we, we're going to go to the TV, the TV shows, okay? Because those TV shows, Laverne and Shirley, Three's Company, Mork and Mindy, Happy Days, and a show, it was short-lived, but it, it burned bright, so very bright, Roy. Uh, again, a nice quote from Blade Runner. The, the light that burns twice as bright burns half as long, okay? Know that. Uh, Three, five, five shows. Angie is the show that was short-lived. Angie is the one that burned bright. Coming in at number five for the year. Laverne Shirley, Three's Company, Mork and Mindy, Happy Days, Angie are all ABC shows. ABC owned the top five with 
uh, audience shares of 30.5, 30 30.3, 28.6, 27, and 26.5. I mean, this is crazy. CBS gets in there with 60 Minutes and MASH. ABC Wedge, their threes company, spin off the Ropers in there briefly. Uh, number number eight show. All in the Family Taxi round out uh, the top 10. Eight is enough. Charlie's Angels were knocking on the door at 11 and 12. ABC was a powerful network. It had a huge bunch of... Inf- that, 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 that Happy Days DNA. Happy Days spun off Laverne and Shirley. It spun off Mork and Mindy. It was the giant show with multi multiple franchises. Eventually, you're going to get Joni Loves Chachi. Yes, you can... Thank Happy Days for Scott Baio. Uh, huge assertion. If you were alive in, um, in, in, in 1978, your TV was tuned to ABC. It was tuned to CBS. The first NBC show that comes is Little House on the Prairie in its waning days, which was you know lodged at number 14. Do you think those NBC people were happy? No, because in the 80s, they would reboot and retool, and they would launch with Cosby Show, Family Ties, and, and uh, uh, you know Hill Street Blues, and St. Elsewhere, and Never Look Back. And night court. I mean, things change. Windows close, windows open, doors open, doors close. That is your top TV of 1978. We've done our top movies. We did our disco. The disco of the day was ruling it. And the best comic of all time came out in 1978. Neil Adams, Superman versus Muhammad Ali. Hell of a year. That X-Men international run with John Byrne, the Korvac saga, the son of Dr. Doom. uh, On those three alone, They'd be enough to transport any comic book company into dominance, and they did. And it's one of the reasons why people swoon over those stories and that era and those talents. And uh, what what an what an amazing year, 1978, uh, the best of the 70s, a a, a very uh, impactful year. And a side note: Star Wars, the comic, is just beginning to find its 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 legs here and it should be noted that all the money marvel made from star wars in 1977 which go now and listen to my dedicated star wars um a license to thrill i believe and 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 there's some other especially first year early early episodes of this podcast cover in depth the reluctance that marvel had to publish star wars why george lucas wanted a comic book out there in the first place stanley's reluctance to get into that business how it ultimately came together. Roy Thomas exerted a lot, the editor-in-chief at the time, a lot of influence, and it saved Marvel from going under. Star Wars literally saved Marvel from going under, And uh, uh, but for these other great runs. 1977 would be the year, but 1978 edges it out. Star Wars came out, saves Marvel, gets them in the black, gives them tons of money to spend on developing even greater franchises and and wooing greater talent and upping page rates and enticing people like John Byrne to do as much work as he did, like Marv Wolfman, like Keith Pollard, like George Perez, who did so much of this Korvac saga. Uh, The success of Star Wars truly catapulted Marvel and the Star Wars comic was a top seller. And during this period, there's the Waterworld period, the Space Pirates with Han Solo. This is my, some of my favorite Star Wars comic books came out in 1978 following the um, the adaptation of the movie that was in the you know last era of 1977, 1978 for the Star Wars comic books, 1978, 1979, some of my favorite, absolute favorite Star Wars comics. But that money was financing a new surge for uh, for the Marvel you know dominance that was to come. Because what's to come is Frank Miller, and what's to come is 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 some of the best Walt Simonson. And 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 even furthering the branding of John Byrne and and more X Men and an expansion of Chris Claremont and his influence and Paul Smith, 
and so much more. And it all started from that last six-month period of 1977, which gave us the amazing successes of 1978. What an amazing year. I thoroughly enjoyed it. If you have not checked out any of these gems, and I'm not just talking comics, go listen to that music, go watch those movies. And um, some of that TV is pretty good. But 1978 is a thoroughly influential, consequential year that absolutely influenced the culture above and beyond going forward. So there you have it. For now, that is going to wrap up our Decades series. 1978, 1986, 1991, 2012. Some key years with some great music, some disco, some grunge, and everything in between, but a lot of high highs, a lot of big moments that uh, defined everything going forward. The 70s was probably my favorite just great memories watching the X-Men just take off. Like I said, I'm just going to keep going back to that again and again and again, that international storyline where they globe topped. It was just escapism. I remember long summer days grabbing those issues that they were in the Savage Land and then pivoting in the fall uh, when they traveled to Japan for several issues. And just uh, as, as our characters traveled the world, I felt I was traveling the world with them. And I was, you know, uh, a kid in Anaheim, California, Orange County, and, and, and going on that uh, ride. And then, again, Superman, Muhammad Ali, just staring at some of the most beautiful art that I've ever encountered. The fact that I am able to own a single page with Superman and Muhammad Ali, uh, Muhammad Ali on it from that issue, just my heart continues to soar. Uh, Superman, huge, gigantic movie. Um, I mean, let's let's be honest. There was a Superman 2, there was a Superman 3 that I did not really care for, but it, it kicked off a decade of Superman films and really put DC in, in a fantastic position. That movie was so important. So yeah, 1978, great year, loved it, loved the music, Saturday Night Fever, great stuff, just kicked off. Man, those Bee Gees, they, they, they were just rocking it. So, we will be back with uh, one more episode before I go on an extended vacation. This is a well-earned vacation. What a crazy year this has already been. And uh, if the last, if the events of the last couple of months didn't knock me down for good, uh, nothing's gonna. But boy, I am headed for some rest and relaxation. So we're gonna get one more new episode in here before the season wraps. Season three will be behind us. And uh, check back in on Friday for that last episode for a good while. Here's the deal. At the end of every episode, I read the most generous comments that you give us. I appreciate them so much. They help separate us from the pack. They help elevate us. We have a, such a good ranking. It's it's one of the best um, things about the show in regards to like measuring our performance. And I just appreciate everything that you guys write in. And uh, today I'm going to share with you this review. And again, at the end of every show, I read the reviews that you guys share with me. This is from Guy Dorian Sr. He wrote about our public domain uh, broadcast episode about a month back. He said, Rob, this episode was so extremely informative. Bravo. I have been a pro in the comic book and toy industry for many years. Some of the info that you mentioned here, I wasn't even sure on. You clarified it so well. I love your passion for comics and all things pop culture. I always have. Never stop. Thanks for the great positive message at the end. The world needs that now and forever. Bam, pow, whack. Badoom, sincerely, Guy Dorian Sr. Guy is a sweet, just sweet guy, super talented guy, uh, works out of New York, uh, 
draws comics, graphic novels, advertising, works in the merchandising world, uh, does illustrations for toy packaging. Uh, really, really happy to see that Guy was um, had left this really sweet message, and I just want to appreciate to just tell you that I appreciate you, Guy, along with everyone else who listens to the show and expresses their interest. Interest. I try and again bring the receipts. Who knew that all my magazines and and uh, sketchbooks and and history books of comics that I've saved and, and stored away from all, for all these years would would come in. Uh, and be so handy in, in sharing such valuable historic information that honestly is being lost to the sands of time. If you guys want to um, turn people onto the show, let them know. All these episodes are waiting to listen to. I uh, I have been meeting so many of you, thousands of you, out in different stores in the last two months, and so many of you guys engage me about the podcast and about the information. It is my pleasure to, to share this with you. It is It is an absolute joy uh, to to grab these magazines with these interviews that are from 1980, 1979, 1978, uh, really, you know, stuff that that it's that, hard to come by. You, you'll be hard-pressed to find these even if you go on eBay and order them. And um, I'm so pleased that I'm able to bring this information to you um, containing interviews from really brilliant minds and talented uh, creators and, and artists and talents uh, so it's it's a pleasure. Thank you, thank you for allowing me to share it with you, and I'm so glad that uh, that is it, it's maybe expanded your view and continues to. And again, pass it along. Tell people these these uh, these episodes are out there. I really kind of look at them as my own personal time capsule. That this is kind of what I was able to leave behind in regards to kind of what I had gleaned, what I had consumed in regards to the art form over my lifetime. So thanks again. I am all over social media. I am on Twitter. I am at Robert Liefeld, the full R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D, continuous. Blue check at the end of that name says it's really me you're talking to. I love all of our discussions, our back and forth. Uh, I just enjoy them so much. Thank you so much for, for all the time that we get to chat. I read your DMs, your messages, your comments, your mentions, and I appreciate it so much. On Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld, R-O-B-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. Find me over there. I'm always sharing some photos, some pictures, some fun stories. I enjoy all of the different interactions we have over there, the mentions, the comments, the DMs, uh, all of the same. It's just so fun. Social media just has just opened up the world in, in, in a way that I just never even could have possibly imagined. This uh podcast has a page on Facebook, Rob Observations with Rob Liefeld. Give it a like, give it a mention, give it a uh, comment. I will find it. I will respond to you. I have a group. It's a group, not a page. It's a group uh, called Rob Liefeld, an extreme group. It is moderated by myself and one other man named Terry Sala, S-A-L-A. That's the way that that way you'll know you've found the real group. I know there's a couple of different um, other groups some that were shut down by me. And this one was the, the new one that we started up a couple years back. Rob Liefeld, an extreme group. Find us over there. We'll get you through. We're sharing art, comics, sketches, all manner of stories and backstories and histories. So join us over there on Rob Liefeld, an extreme group on Facebook. We love seeing you. And uh, you guys, just, uh, you know, at the end of every show, I implore you to take care of yourself spiritually, emotionally, spiritually, emotionally, physically, mentally. Kick back. Uh, read a good book. I, I passed one of my kids' rooms earlier and, and they were reading uh, a book and it's just great on a summer afternoon. They're not on, the, not on their screen. They're in, in inhaling some great creativity via uh, a fictional novel that they're reading and it's just so fun. It's so so fun to know that they're enjoying uh, their leisure time 
in, you know, that's what summer's for right now more than ever. Uh, grab a Slurpee, grab a bag of chips, uh, uh, watch a great movie, some streaming, get out, go through a park, go, go to a park, uh, take a boat around the lake, go to the beach, um, read great comics, listen to great music, read great books, watch fun movies, great TV. You guys just enrich your creative soul. Uh, I do on a daily basis. These comics on my spinner rack here are getting pulled regularly. Uh, my, my bookshelves are always being plundered. I uh, practice what I preach. You guys, make sure you circle around and visit me again sooner than later because uh, I'm going to be here and we are going to talk again real soon. 